Pastor Andrew Brunson was imprisoned in Turkey for his faith in Christ. As he endured intense emotional trauma, he began to worry that he was literally going insane. There were times when I was wondering what is real and what isn't real. And I could feel myself just slip over a barrier. Slip over it. I'm going over into a place that I know is, is insanity. And feeling it, feeling myself go over the edge and just pulling myself back. And my fear was that one of those times I, I wouldn't be able to pull myself back. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help, right now on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Welcome again to The Voice of the Martyrs Radio. My name is Todd Nettleton, and uh, we are in the studio this week with Pastor Andrew Brunson. Most of our listeners will have heard that name before. Uh, We actually had Andrew's daughter Jacqueline on right before his trial started in Turkey. Uh, Andrew was arrested in Turkey. He was charged with uh, all sorts of crimes, trying to overthrow the government and, and do different things there, be part of the CIA. He spent two years in prison. Uh, before he was found guilty and sentenced to the time that he'd already served and allowed to leave. He's got a new book out. In fact, it comes out next Tuesday. It's called God's Hostage. If you'll come to vomradio.net, we'll give you a link where you can order the book. I want to encourage you, uh, get a copy of this book and read it. Uh, I think after hearing our conversation today, you're going to want to do that. Uh, Andrew, welcome to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thank you. You know, a lot of people that listen to our radio program prayed for you. Uh, and so this interview is is an answer to prayer for me personally, but also for a lot of our listeners to have you back in the U.S., out of prison. So I, I just want to give you, as we start out, just a chance to talk to those people that prayed for you. Yes, I'm so grateful. Uh, so many people prayed for me, and it's it's hard for me to grasp, actually. And it was really a supernatural move of God. Obviously, Noreen was trying to raise prayer as much as she could. And there are several networks of friends that we have who spread things. But uh, this went well beyond that. Uh, And it was not only the number of people who began to pray over time. I know that many people prayed with great intensity. And I've been surprised when some people say, you know, I would wake up in the middle of the night and pray for you. And I thought, I don't do that for anybody in the middle of the night. <laughs> so it was clearly something God was doing. It wasn't just a natural thing where you hear about uh, a need and you begin to pray for it. This was really prompted by Holy Spirit. And God was putting me on many people's hearts in an unusual way so that people who have never we didn't have a famous ministry we were not well known we were off in some corner of turkey and uh, in a ministry that was really under the radar for the most part and yet so many people prayed uh, with such intensity for me and it spread around the world so god was doing this obviously there was a purpose in this it included sustaining me in difficult circumstances in prison but and also getting me out it, 
I say I rode a wave of prayer out of Turkey, but a tsunami of prayer crashed into Turkey, a great wave of prayer. And so God was using this to prepare for harvest in Turkey. I was a magnet that was drawing in prayer. But I'm so grateful to all your listeners who did pray for me. It sustained me. It was so important to me. I want to mention something else. Being in uh, here at Voice of the Martyrs is, uh, is very special to me. Uh, I, as we walked through here, I saw Richard Vernbrandt's Bibles. It's very an, a very emotional time for me because I spent a lot of time in prison with Richard Vernbrandt. Obviously not physically, but at some point when they allowed me to get books, I received some of his books. And I started to read those. I started to devour them. And he became one of my uh, role models, a hero. And I often said, Lord, why why can't I be more like Richard Vermbrandt, <laughs> who endured so much? And I, I tore a picture out of one of his books. It wasn't one of him dressed nicely in his clerical uh, things. It was It was one that was taken, I think, probably in his prison time. And so he's grizzled and... Uh, looking very worn. And I, I put that on right next to my bed in prison. And I would see that several times a day, numerous times a day, just to remember, just to have that as an encouragement. He endured and was faithful. And Lord, let me be like Richard Vermbrandt. So being here is very emotional. I just spoke at your chapel. And this hasn't happened to me so far. This is the first time, but I broke down crying five or six times, because being in this place and with the, the connection to Richard Vermbrandt and how he was an example to me, it just brings a lot of those emotions back. So right now I'm emotionally exhausted. Yes. <laughs> For those of you who are listening and maybe don't know, Richard Wormbrand was the founder of The Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, he spent 14 years in prison in communist Romania. His wife, Sabina, spent three years in prison uh, so that that's the connection to Voice of the Martyrs. Andrew, your book is is out this week. People can read your story. It's not the story of somebody who was in victory every single day for two years, just praising the Lord. Thank you for letting me be in prison. There's some pretty dark places in your story. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, and about how people who read this book are going to see not just the great victory, but also, wow, there were some really painful times. So from reading biographies and hearing testimonies of people who suffered persecution, I had uh, an expectation that when I went to prison, of course I didn't expect to go to prison, but when I landed there, my expectation was that I would have a real sense of joy, even in the midst of grief, that I would have a sense of strength, of spiritual power, that I would sense God's presence and feel grace, just a, a supernatural, just an overwhelming sense of grace. And this did not happen to me. And I had expected this. I had this idealized view of suffering, I think, because of biographies. And what I experienced was something very different. I actually... Uh, experienced a period of silence from God and a feeling of being abandoned by God. Now, he didn't abandon me, but the sense of his presence I had often enjoyed because I had run after his presence for many years. 
that was completely removed from me. And so I was shocked. And this actually, along with some other things, took me into spiritual crisis. I hadn't expected this at all, and I wasn't ready for it. And I thought, where are you, God? Why why are you so silent? How can you leave me like this in my most difficult, darkest time? One of the things he was doing through that was teaching me to stand in the dark. One of the verses that was very important to me, became very important to me, was Isaiah 50, 10, where God says, for the one who is walking in darkness and has no light, let him trust in the name of his God and lean into him. And the interesting thing about this is that Israel is in exile. God is saying this to them. So he's the one who put them into the darkness, and he could remove them from darkness and give them light any time. But he doesn't say, here, I'll give you light. He says, lean into me. And so I had to learn this again and again and practice it to lean into God when my emotions and my senses were, were in a completely different place. And one of the things that comes out again and again in the book is, is that act, that act of the will. You talk about it in the book. This is an act of the will. I don't feel this. I don't want this. But as an act of my will, I choose this. Can you talk a little bit about how you did that literally on a daily basis? You were setting your will that I am going to lean into God. So I had been very broken for a number of reasons and uh, was also suicidal, just was a, had a, a sense of, uh, well, a lot of anxiety with despair, just mixed with despair. And that's a, that's a very dangerous combination. So I was broken. I had a lot of questions, a lot of doubts. And at some point, there was a turning point where I made a decision. I accepted that there was very little I could do to fight for my freedom in an effective way. Because everything we tried, nothing had worked. So I couldn't do much there, but I could fight for my faith. And I needed to fight for my faith because I was slipping. And I, my, my heart had grown uh, cold. I had, was very offended uh, at God. And this was suffocating my relationship with him. And it's like suddenly the light goes on and I think, oh, God, I need to, I need to fight for my relationship with you. I need to fight for, for my friendship and intimacy because if I lose this, then I've lost everything. And so it was a decision of the will. My emotions, as I said, during my whole time in prison, I didn't feel grace. There was definitely grace, but it was an unfelt grace. I didn't feel joy. I didn't feel God's presence. I couldn't do this through my emotions. And I often said to God, don't look at my emotions. Look at what I'm saying. Look at my declarations. When I'm saying I want to run after you and and I, I want to endure, this is a decision of my will. Look at my will. And so I made a decision. I am going to fight for my relationship with God. And from that... I began to take a number of steps, uh, especially in my second year in prison, that were acts of obedience, discipline, and acts of the will to run after God. When I made this, I would say, commitment, this a turning point, it's like I, I made a decision and I, I declared it to God. I said, whatever you do or don't do, I will follow you. 
And what I was saying in this is, whatever you do for me, or you don't do that because there are things he was not doing. And I said, if you don't give me your presence, I will follow you. If you don't speak to me, if you remain silent, I will still follow you. If you don't rescue me, I will follow you. I am going to hang on. Now, even my, however much determination I have, it's still pretty weak. Even at my strongest point, uh, it's still pretty weak. But God looks at that, and it's so valuable to him. And that's why I call that process cooperating with grace. I was giving my feeble response, saying, I'm going to go after you. And God was, yes, and just pouring the grace in that I couldn't feel, but that was enabling me to persevere and run after him. What did you do in the times that you were disappointed with God and angry with God? You know, what am I doing in prison, God? Why are you allowing this to go on again? Why are you silent? What Did you tell God, God, I'm angry with you? How did you kind of work through that, that process? Uh, yes, I did tell him all those things. <laughs> and uh, uh, I remember when I was first put into high-security prison, and it was a shock to me because I really thought that I was going to be released. And I felt very abandoned by God, that he had turned me over to Satan as he did Job, and I felt betrayed. And I yelled at him. I couldn't yell out loud, but just inside, I'm yelling at him, why are you so silent? And I might as well talk to this wall. Uh, I was so frustrated and angry because I thought, I I have all these questions and doubts, and there's no other Christian I can speak to. I was uh, in a cell with only Muslims during my whole time in prison. my, My cellmates were all Muslims. And my only contact with a Christian was with Noreen, and at that time, they weren't allowing me to have visits. I was completely cut off, and I was desperate. I'm like, God, please answer my questions. Please do something that will stabilize me or let me know that you're involved in this. Uh, so I did, I did say a lot of things, actually, um, that, were, that were wrong. And l- later I went back and repented for them. <laughs> I didn't actually mean that. Yes. We're talking today on Voices of Martyrs Radio with Andrew Brunson. He is the author of a brand new book, God's Hostage. I would encourage you to come to vomradio.net. We have a link where you can order a copy of the book. Uh, Andrew, from reading the book, the impression I have is that Noreen is kind of the hero of the story, other than God, obviously, being the ultimate hero. But do you agree with that? I, I mean, how how important was it? that she was supporting you and coming to visit you and speaking blessing over you? It was the means God used to keep me going. I like to think that if she hadn't been there, God would have done something, but I don't know what that would have been. (laughs) So she stayed at personal risk to herself. Uh, A number of people told her, a number of of, uh, leaders we respect, told her that she should leave Turkey, and there was risk to her that they would arrest her again, that they would put her in prison. And she had tasted detention for 13 days, and it was very difficult. So she she knew, uh, in a sense, what she was doing. She knew what the cost could be, the consequences could be. And yet, because of her love for me, 
she stayed and put herself at risk because she was the only person who could visit me. I was very restricted as to who had access. So she would come every week once we started having regular visits, and she had to get permission from the capital city every time she visited me. But once that started happening on a regular basis, she would come in, and she was my pastor, you could say. She would speak truth to me, encourage me, and give me the right perspective. And sometimes she had to correct and rebuke. I mean, she would say, Andrew, that is wrong. Don't say that and speak truth to me. And this was so important because I was so isolated and so confused sometimes. And she she just kept speaking to me the truth. And, uh, yeah, she is heroic. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Andrew, there's parts of your story that just kind of border on the absurd. When you read the story and you read about the charges and, oh, you're working with the Kurds to do a separatist movement. Oh, you're working with Fatullah Gulen. Oh, you're the chief CIA officer for Turkey. Not only for Turkey. They said I was for the whole Middle East. The whole Middle East. And then they went beyond that and said, in in newspapers and media, they're saying, you know, if Priest Brunson, they call me priest, if uh, if he, he was going to become the director of the CIA, if only he had been successful in the coup. So <laughs> <laughs> so you would have got a big promotion if, if the coup would have been successful. How did you deal with the ridiculousness of this? I, I mean, from this perspective now, we can laugh about it. But when you're sitting in prison with all these things floating around, how did you deal with that? The first time that... There was an avalanche of, of these accusations was after President Trump asked for my release from President Erdogan at a summit. And this was the response that came from the Turkish government. So the Turkish government uh, controls much of the media in Turkey. And so what was very scary to me uh, wasn't just that these things were in the media, but what the source was. I knew that this was basically a propaganda campaign, and it reflected what they were trying to spread about me, the government was. And that was very scary because you have this strong government, authoritarian government that is very hostile toward me. One of the things I I was aware that they were doing was painting me as a traitor, as someone who hates Turks, an enemy of Turkey, uh, saying I had threatened to cut the heads off of Turks and uh, all kinds of awful, awful things. So they're painting me as this terrible threat who wants to undermine the country, split it apart. They're doing this to me, but really, they're also, by painting me with this, they're painting all of the believers in Turkey in the same way. And so there's already a hostility or suspicion toward uh, for Christians, uh, but this was bringing it up to a much higher level. I memorized the verses and often repeated them. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things about you on account of me. I thought, they really are saying all kinds of evil, (laughs) all kinds of falsehood. And I was so frustrated because I knew why I was being held. It was because of of my work as a missionary, because it was religious persecution. And I wish they would say, Brunson is in prison because he started churches, or he was declaring Jesus Christ, and we won't allow this. And I would have embraced that and been proud of it. But instead, 
well, Jesus said that's what would ha- what will happen. You will be called evil. And they did. They said I was evil. And this was very frustrating. How much did you feel like that was a risk to your personal safety? Because if the government hates this guy, Priest Brunson, uh, I would think that one, some of your fellow prisoners might think, hey, I could earn some some good feelings from the government if I would do something to Priest Brunson. When I, when I was arrested as uh, a member of the Fatullah Gulen movement, which is an Islamist movement, I was in prison with people who actually were part of the movement. So they knew very well that that was not true. I mean, what would I be doing with an Islamist movement when I've spent 23 years at that time telling people about Jesus and trying to invite them out of Islam? And so, that you didn't were make deep sense. Undercover. Yeah. <laughs> but when the government started accusing me of being a supporter of the PKK, which is a Kurdish separatist group, and of being a military spy and of threatening to cut the heads off of Turks, being a special forces officer who had a number of American special forces under me that I was using to try to, you know, split the country apart. Well, that kind of thing, uh, the people I was with in prison, uh, Turkey is a land of conspiracy theories, and some of them could begin to believe that. So then there was a heightened sense of, uh, of tension in my cell. Yeah, I, I had some concerns that, that someone could do something to me. At the same time, to be honest, I didn't care that much because I was so uh, discouraged at the time that I was just saying, oh, Jesus, please take me to heaven to be with you. Later on, when uh, they put me under house arrest at the very end of my time in Turkey, by that time, there was such hatred that had been stoked by the media and by, by the government that there was risk, I think, and they had very high security. We had 20, 30 soldiers, police around our apartment, not to keep me in, right. but to protect us. And wherever they, whenever they took me to the, moved me from place to place, it was in a convoy uh, with armored vehicles because, because they had made me they a hate figure. About you. Yes. They weren't worried about me. They were. They. <laughs> they didn't want you to die on their watch. Yes, they had. They, they had made the me blame for it. They had made me a hate figure, and now they had to protect me uh, because it had reached because, a very high level yeah. politically. We're talking today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with Andrew Brunson. He is the author of a brand new book, God's Hostage. Again, if you'll come to vomradio.net, we'll give you a link to order a copy of the book. Uh, Andrew, you write in the book about the times in prison, you you became genuinely fearful that you were going insane, that, that you were losing your mind. Talk a little bit about that and, and how you bounced back from that. So first, my wife would like you to know that I did not go insane. <laughs> but what happened is that I had so much anxiety. And some of this is triggered from just from stress, the adrenaline, the cortisol, it, it, it can be overwhelming. And when people want to, when they want to break someone, what I've been told is uh, you isolate them and uh, sleep deprivation. And I had just come off of 50 days of uh, isolation, solitary confinement in a detention center when they put me in prison. And I had really struggled in that. And they didn't have to deprive me of sleep my body was depriving me of sleep because of all the stress. So I'm sleeping maybe three hours a day. So I'm exhausted. I have constant 
waves of panic attacks because of the adrenaline and cortisol in my body. It's not just thinking something negative and then I, or, uh, I become afraid and get panic. It's, a, it's much more of a physical thing and also despair. So these are mixed together. I felt at times such a sense of dislocation. And there were times when I was wondering what is real and what isn't real. And I could feel myself just slip over a barrier, slip over it. I'm going over into a place that I know is, is insanity and feeling it, feeling myself go over the edge and just pulling myself back. And my fear was that one of those times I, I wouldn't be able to pull myself back. Now, God kept my mind. But there are, there are instances where people actually do uh, lose their mind. And this is from Richard Vermbrandt, something that, that really touched me. As he saw people in terrible conditions in communist prisons who actually became insane. And how do you put that together with God protecting his children? And Richard Vermbrandt's answer was, their insanity was beautiful to God. Obviously, it's a terrible thing from our viewpoint, but, but to God, when he sees his children, this was a result of their suffering for Jesus, so it was precious to him. Now, I'm glad I didn't go that far, but it was something I was afraid of. I was also afraid that in that very tense environment, I was with Muslims all the time, and there was a very... Uh, intense spiritual environment of 24-7 prayers and chanting of the Quran and things like that. And I was afraid that with all my doubts, questions, fears, and the constant pressure from uh, Islam, that in some way I would end up failing in my walk with God and turn away. I didn't want to turn away. I I was just desperately embracing him. But in that fear, that combination of thinking that I'm uh, losing my mind, that I may lose it, and that I, and I may just end up falling from my relationship with God, that is what led me to especially deal with uh, suicidal thoughts. How long had you been in prison when you got a hold of Richard Wormbrand's book? Probably eight or nine months, ten months or so. And, and did you feel like... You had met a kindred spirit as you were reading those those books? No, I felt that uh, I'd met an incredible hero. And, <laughs> and I often said, God, why am I so broken? Because I thought I was a, I was a seasoned missionary. We had spent 23 years in, in Turkey, a number of them church planting. I've said, if you want to be popular, then you don't start churches in, among Muslims. It makes you unpopular. So we had had pressure. There had been threats over the years. I had been attacked once by a gunman. We had worked at, in places where we put ourselves at risk, for example, near the Syrian border where there was near war zone and all kinds of crazy things happening. But to reach uh, refugees, we went there and put ourselves at risk. So I thought, I've counted the cost before. I've been through difficulties. Why am I breaking in prison? And I think there are reasons for that, the, the isolation, uh, the lack of sleep, the threat, because it was a threat on my life in the sense that 
I didn't know when I was going to get out, and they wanted to give me a life sentence, three life sentences in solitary confinement with no parole. So I thought this could be the rest of my life. And I'm looking at Richard Wurmbrandt, and I'm thinking, wow, this guy endured under horrible circumstances and got out of prison and then went right back to doing his church work, so knowing that that would send him to prison again. And I looked up to up to him so much, and I thought, Lord, why can I not be like him or like the Chinese or, or, or others? And as I was reading, uh, I started to notice that some of the people who are famous for going through difficulty actually really struggle too. So I had an Iron Judson who was the first American missionary and was kind of known as a, I don't know, missionary of pain or something, <laughs> of a perseverance. He actually thought about throwing himself off a bridge when he was being transported between prisons. And I started to hear of others who struggled with these dark thoughts. And uh, Haralan Popov, who was a, a prisoner in Bulgaria, and uh, just wanted them to pull the trigger. Helen Rosevere, who uh, went through a very traumatic experiences in Congo as a missionary. And again, they have a gun to her head, and she's saying, oh, God, let them pull the trigger. And others who struggled with these things. And I started to realize I'm not the only one. Since getting out of prison, I have heard from people who, who work with uh, prisoners in other countries, people who've been in prison for their faith, that actually my experience is not that abnormal. That there are rays of light, you know, from God, but that many of them experience uh, the silence of God uh, in that time and really struggle. We're out of time for our broadcast window this week. Andrew is going to be back with us next week here on Voice of the Martyrs Radio. We're going to continue the story, continue to hear about his time in prison. Again, I want to encourage you. His book, God's Hostage, is out this coming Tuesday. We will give you a link at vomradio.net where you can order a copy of the book. Read it. Get it. Uh, and, and he shares this story. He shares with really amazing honesty and transparency. Uh, Andrew, thanks for being our guest this week on Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thank you. We'll be back next week with Andrew Brunson. Again, I hope you'll join us. If you are just now tuning in, I want to encourage you, go to vomradio.net, listen to this whole conversation. You can also go back and listen to the conversation we had with Andrew's daughter, Jacqueline, right before his trial started in Turkey. And join us again next week as we continue this conversation with Andrew Brunson here on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.